Yo, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning, Wisecracks Movie Podcast. Show me the Pliskin, baby! <laughs> I love it. Does he have a, is that like a Scandinavian name that he's given? Uh, Snake Pliskin. Snake Pliskin. And the it way was, that it's it was, spelled. Yeah, I, I saw an interview with John Carpenter. He said that it, that he, it, it was somebody that he heard, it was a friend of a friend that he, some guy that that friend of his knew in high school and that would go around saying, my name's Snake Pliskin, but call me Snake. And he just thought that was cool. A guy went around saying, call me Snake, you know? See, everybody, you have to draw from your own personal experiences in order to make good art, right? Come on, that's what well, you or, do. Or, or friends of yours that have funny experiences, just put it in your art, you know, either yeah, way. Exactly, and then say that it was your experience. <laughs> Whatever, who cares? Right. Uh, so it's welcome to the show. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith. I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We've got Ryan. Sup, film fans? And we've got Raymond. Call me Snake. <laughs> yeah, call me Snake too. <laughs> okay, so we hey, got Snake One dead. and Snake Two. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> as you can tell, this call me Snake as well. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be continuing our John Carpenter retrospective. I feel like it's unfair to call it a retrospective because he's still very much alive. But anyway, yeah. we're going to be talking about what he has produced so far throughout this month. This is our second to last film. We're going to be talking about the 1981 classic Escape from New York that stars Kurt Russell, Donald Pleasant, Adrian Barbeau was making an appearance. She was also in The Fog. Uh, Harry Borgnine. What's that? Ernest Borgnine. Ernest Borgnine. Hello. I'm sure you're about to get to him. I just had to yell his name. No, I appreciate it. I, as I was watching it, I was live tweeting a little bit, and I just typed okay. in all caps, Ernest Borgnine. That's it. Like, I was like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, shit. That's all it is. And Isaac said, Hayes. Isaac Hayes is in it. So, My Memphis man. Yeah, I, I, this was Ryan's choice. Basically, the way we did it, we were like, okay, we're going to focus on one director for the month, and uh, each of us got to choose one. My choice was Big Trouble, uh, Raymond's was The Fog, Ryan's was Escape, and then next week we're going to talk about The Thing, so make sure you kind of prep, prep for that. Everyone's um, universal but, favorite. That, that's yeah, why, yeah, that's, we're going to end with that one. It's you got to talk about The Thing. It is the top. I mean, it's it's a lot of people that I know's favorite films. Actually, a friend of mine who's a director in uh in london has been following along so shouts to kier and he's like dude i'm going to literally get the poster for the thing tattooed on my arm so like oh my that's a good favorite so many people I, love the commitment. thing right right so um so anyway this was ryan's choice so let's do first impressions let's start with ryan ryan why did you choose this film what was it like the first time you watched it what's it like on repeat viewings go ahead Floor is yours. I've seen this movie so many times. This movie had a big <laughs> impact on my life, like in terms wow. of of what how, the movies I wanted to make and stuff. Mm. I just love. To me, this is the ultimate high concept movie, right? Where just the the very uh, the log line gets you excited. When I heard it, it's like someone you know. I think Robert Rodriguez in an interview was the first time I had ever heard it because he loves this movie. And this was a big influence on his life, and you know, he just says, "Yeah." New York City becomes a supermax prison, and uh, and then the president, Air Force One, crash lands, and a and a crazy killer guy has to go and save him. Like to me, that's like whoa, you know, I want to yeah. see that movie. And then this movie totally delivers on that premise in the most John Carpenter Carpentery way. He's, it's a total awesome genre packed movie, and it's also a testament to low budget filmmaking because it's this movie was yeah. made for nothing, and it feels like a huge movie. Right. Yes. They, uh, and it has a crazy backstory. I'm sure we'll get into it. Just how they how they made 
a shitty New York. Spoiler alert, it's just a shitty St. Louis. I think they actually they just moved half the trash off of St. Louis's streets and they were like, now it looks bad. Enough. Right. Well, <laughs> yeah, like a whole, like literally there's a giant fire that burnt down entire uh, blocks of St. Louis. And so they just used that as, the, as a New York that had been a prison for many years already. Anyway, I, I just love everything about this movie. All the crazy characters that he runs into. Snake Plissken himself is such an iconic anti-hero what the movie's saying and what it's trying to get you to think, but inside of a crazy uh, uh, genre fun movie. Uh, and then uh, has, I have to bring it up every time, the fucking score rocks. John Carpenter is just the best at making his own kind of scores, and they're great. I, can, I never get sick of his synth music. Um, so, yeah, this movie just is, is cool. It, it was great the first time I saw it. It's great this time, too. Did you watch it on one and a half? Time speed. Fuck no. I watched, I sat down, I, I treasure every time that I'm going to watch from the beginning to end Escape from New York. It's amazing. We should talk to about Escape from LA at some point too, because that's another interesting sequel. Uh, that's a wild at, one. At, at, at the end, but, and it's not as good, obviously, but anyway, this movie rocks. Two thumbs up. All right. Raymond, what do you think, brother? Um, I had watched this one a ton in high school. This was uh, a fan favorite back then, and I think at the time it was just like, yeah, this is just a crazy fun movie uh, with all these cool character archetypes. Um, never really dug into the, uh, the the subtext and all that kind of stuff at that age. But uh, I watched it a couple years ago, really enjoyed it then, and then I watched it again to prep for this podcast. And guys, this movie's the best. Yes, <laughs> amen. So dude. fucking good. And what Ryan said uh, about how big the movie seems for its budget really stood out to me yeah. on this rewatch because even having watched it as many times as I have, all I think about, my memories of this movie are close-ups of Kurt Russell in an eye patch and Ooh. a few of the interiors, you know, the theater scene is pretty cool. Um, that scene where they're inside that, I don't know if it's like a, an old rundown diner that they're in where the girl gets pulled underneath the floor. Oh, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But I always forget how much how much takes place outside during this. And those streets mm. are just abandoned and run down. And it, it really does, like, it fucking sells it. Like, yeah. you, you buy it 100% when you're watching it because... My God, they have some camera moves that that traverse an entire city block and look in tons of different directions. And every single place you look, it, it appears to be an authentic shithole. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it uh, seems, another another it seems pretty legit. Yeah, another technique they did was they would take a fire hose and just hose down the whole neighborhood, so it was just really you know wet looking. And then they light yeah. they light that's the, pretty common the film technique puddles. Yeah. yeah, it's pretty common, but 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 just. But it does give already, it that extra, that extra texture and grime to it. Totally, yeah, it, it, when something makes already you feel like the, sh the city itself is sweating a little bit. Um, yeah, th this is a this is a great movie. I'm excited to talk about it. Sweet. Well, I think I mentioned it last week. This was my first time watching it. I'd never seen it. I'm before. so excited for you. How was yeah. that? Yeah, no, it was it was great. I agree with everything that you're saying. I, think, I saw you tweeting about it. Yeah, yeah. I think the thing that that hit me the most was the world that he built. I I've been I've been paying attention a lot to world building in films lately, and it really was triggered from just some books that I read on on screenwriting and stuff. I guess in in film theory, but also really it was I went and saw Alien in the theater, 
And I remember sitting there and just in the first like half hour, I was like, holy shit, look at how you can make a world with practical effects, right? And that was the thing that I started to become really interested in. Like, how can you do that either by using miniatures or by using uh, like some sort of like plastics or whatever it is that you're using or by using abandoned city streets in St. Louis. I didn't know that it was in St. Louis. So for me, I think the thing that's so amazing is that I also love the lighting in this, the dramatic lighting. Like when he gets in the glider and he's got the green on his face and the red behind his head and that contrast, how they meet kind of, you see the glow on his head, but the front is the green. I don't know why. And then that green is in the city streets, right? It's also in the glass, the glass that they're breaking, the sugar glass on the windows has that green tint to it when they're like moving around city streets it's almost like you know green is um is a, is like a sign of gangrene or like pus or sickness or, or something like that gr- greed from the government because this movie is all about not trusting the fucking government yeah, it, I can totally Which see also why you makes enjoy me this, like Ryan. it. Yeah, I was going to say, I can totally, when you were saying, I thought you were going to say that like politically and ethically, you were kind of like, because you've got that libertarian kind of anarcho, like kind of just let this us This is a total libertarian movie, yeah. <laughs> so I could see how you would find, I would, you would find this uh, to, to be good. Yeah, I thought it was fantastic. I think Kurt Russell's kind of cool guy, raspy voice thing works perfectly. I think it's a fantastic film. But here's the thing. It's not an action film. It's not a, a scary film. This is just a Western. And I think we need to talk about this. This is, a, this is a revisionist Western. And I did not realize how much of a Western it would be until I was watching it. And I was like, holy friggin' crap. And I can't wait to talk about some of the themes and the politics. I didn't realize that John Carpenter was such a political filmmaker until I've been paying attention, especially the last two especially the last two movies, that he is such a political filmmaker, and I don't think we talk about that. So there's something so interesting that, that, that Carpenter is this aesthetic genius, this horror genius, this mood, tone, synth, sound, soundtrack genius, and also he's got amazing themes that he's really working through. So I, I can't wait to really kind of delve into this even more. Yeah. Okay, so before, before we do that, though, let's just do a quick recap for people who are either unfamiliar or need a refresher. All right, so basically, following a 400% increase in crime, Manhattan Island has been turned into a maximum security prison. The famous tagline for this is, once you go in, you don't go out. Air Force One gets hijacked at this time by a group who declare that the U.S. is a racist imperialist monster, but the president is able to escape in a pod before the plane crashes. Police are dispatched to recover the president, but it's too late. He's been taken by the Duke and the prisoners on the island. At this time, former Special Forces badass Snake Plissken is being brought into custody for knocking off the Fed, but he's offered a deal that if he rescues the president that he'll be granted a pardon. Now, there's a catch, though. To make sure he's a good boy for the state, Snake has been infused with micro-explosives in his arteries that'll explode in 22 hours, and only when he comes back with the president will they be neutralized. So Snake is given a glider, and he takes it, and he lands on the World Trade Center and makes his way down into the city streets to track down the Prez. Along the way, he meets a bunch of people, including Cabby, played by Ernest Bornine, who takes Snake to Brain, who's an advisor to the Duke. The Duke is planning a mass escape from the island by using the president as a shield, so Snake forces the brain and his main squeeze, Maggie, to take him to the Duke so that he can get the president before this plan is executed. Snake finds the president, but he gets captured, and then he's forced to fight some huge dude in some sort of kind of 
cage matchy kind of thing with sticks and shields and some sort of bat that has nails in it. He ends up winning. The crowd starts to cheer for him, but at the same time, Brain and Maggie nab the president, so the crowd and the Duke start chasing after them with Snake limping behind. Eventually, Snake and the team reach the walls and they start to get the president to, safe, uh, to safety. They have to kill the Duke in the process. And the film closes with the president preparing to make a televised speech to the leaders of a peace summit. He tells Snake that he can have anything he wants, and all Snake says is that he wants to know how the president feels about the people who died saving him. The president can only offer a half-hearted, scripted sort of reply about their sacrifice and bravery. Snake walks away disgusted. As the television event begins, the president pulls out a tape that was intended to be a message to the members of the peace summit, but it's actually been replaced by Snake with a fake. And then we close on Snake one final time, tearing up the real cassette tape with the actual message, end of story. Fuck the man! Before we continue, I want to give a shout out to Storyblocks. Storyblocks is the complete stock solution to providing an unlimited library of over 1 million plus royalty-free, high-quality video, audio, and images. If you're a creative, then you know how pricey stock media can get. It ranges so widely, and single music track could cost you thousands of dollars. With Storyblocks, you can stay on budget with the most affordable subscription plans that still give you the tools you need to finish your project. Here at Wisecrack, we find different music for every video, so it's great that we can just hop on and download as many tracks as we need without having to worry about the individual price. We can test out each asset to see what we like, and there's no worry we'll accidentally spend on something we don't need or doesn't fit. The best part is that we'll stay on budget and we won't get those nasty copyright strikes. If you have a project and you need high-quality stock solution, then check out Storyblocks today. Click the link in the show notes or go to storyblocks.com wisecrack to learn more about their subscription plans. Now back to the show. All right, so let's start diving into this film, uh, Ryan. Since this was your choice, first things first, start talking about right. some of your some of your favorite things. Uh, what's like the thing that you love more than anything about Escape? Um, kind of like I said before, the like we said the the world and stuff. I love yeah. just Snake Plissken's reaction to everything, and uh, like uh, uh, another fun tidbit about this movie. Uh, like uh, uh, storytelling wise is that the, the movie begins and it's this long thing at the Statue of Liberty. You're kind of seeing the uh, the prison and then you, you're, you're seeing Snake uh, Pliskin get brought in like he's already been uh, he's done some crime and he's just he's just there. Well, they had a whole first reel of the movie where you saw the big crime that he did where he's you know he, he's being chased down the subway and I think they robbed a bank and whatnot and anyway it just took a while to get to New York where you want to go and apparently in the in all of his first screenings a lot of people didn't you know he wasn't getting the reaction he wanted and then they basically said yeah you know like that basically they just all said that it took forever to get to New York and that was when it got cool so he's just he's like all right so I just threw out the fucking first reel voila you know, and which I think is kind of funny that and and a cool editing thing where even though you shot all this, hundreds of people spent all this time making this giant sequence. It doesn't work for the fucking story and uh, the uh, the pace that you're going with. So, boom, out of there. See ya, baby. Kill um, your darlings. Yeah, it's funny how well the movie works without that, despite the fact that when you watch it, you're like, God, what are the odds that 
as soon as they need, you know, a world-class badass to parachute into fucking New York to save the president, it just so happens we pinched Snake Plissken of all people. It, I did. Um, it was interesting, too. It took a while for Kurt Russell to kind of come into the story, I thought. I, I or maybe not a while, but, like, even when the stories first started, they, they introduce him being kind of, like, walked in, and then they kind of just leave him for another, like, seven minutes. And you're kind of like, oh, okay, so he's being brought into custody. And, and then there's it a lot of business between uh, Lee Van Cleef and Tom Atkins and yeah. kind of setting the stage and all that yeah. yeah yeah i was kind of surprised about that and then he comes in which usually isn't the way that that people make films usually it's like start with the protagonist set this whole thing up but this one it was kind of like they kind of introduce him about 10 minutes in you know and and uh the reason i was bringing that up too was because of your western comparison which john carpenter totally calls this a western you know and makes that same exact comparison and it it, it very much works like a man with no name kind of situation where uh, without having that first reel where this guy, just this badass, his aura, the mystery of it all uh, makes him a a stronger character than knowing exactly all the crimes he's committed. It's just, uh, you know, every time he runs into somebody and they're like, I thought you were dead. Like that's just kind of like, this creates the mythos of Snake Plissken. It's like he's a legend in his own time. Yeah, yeah. It, we don't have to know anything about what he did before. We just know based on everyone's reaction to him uh, that he is this larger than life, you know, man with no name, Clint Eastwood like character, and it totally right adds down to the to Western Lee like Van Cleef playing opposite him. It's oh, so yeah, ab- yeah and that is just and, so and, on the nose. And Lee Van Cleef is essentially playing like the sheriff who's telling him to toe the line and right. like, hey, I know and you're the new you're, you you're the know, new hot yeah. gun in town, but look, I make the rules. You just you just follow him, buddy. Well, since we're talking about the Western motif, let's really dig into this. So we've we've talked about this a lot on Wisecrack. We did this especially with the Logan video where we talked about how Logan is basically a Western, um, and we used the work of a sociologist by the name of Will Wright to frame that video, and he wrote this book called Six Guns and Society, and um, I'm just going to read real quick the uh, kind of synopsis of this book, because I think it helps us kind of understand what's going on with the Western genre, but also maybe with this film. So the, the kind of the synopsis of this book from the preface is that the purpose of this book is to explain the Western's popularity. While the Western itself may seem simple, an explanation of its popularity cannot be. For the Western, like any myth, stands between individual human consciousness and society. If a myth is popular, it must somehow appeal to or reinforce the individuals who view it by communicating a symbolic meaning to them. This must in turn reflect the particular social institutions and attitudes that have created and continue to nourish the myth. Thus, a myth must tell its viewers about themselves and their society. So what he basically argues in this book is that the Western is a particular type of American myth. It's a myth about how America was founded, how the West was won. And one of the key components that he talks about is how the man with no name is a man of violence. And that man of violence comes from outside, but is brought into civilization in order to build civilization to restore peace because violence is required to build peace. But 
The problem is, is that man of violence has no place because he has no name. He has no place in that society, so must leave. So you can see Shane, for example. The man has to leave. Look at the film Logan or look at The Searchers. There's that heartbreaking shot at the end where John Wayne can't come into the house and he turns around. I just got chills, by the way, even talking about this. He can't come <laughs> into the house and he stands in the doorway and there's a sense of longing and the family are celebrating that peace has been brought back. But what does he do? He turns and walks away because he can't come in. And so there's something about this that kind of, I think, tells us. It's one of the great final shots. And it really speaks to how it is that that violence and civilization and society and how a state and a nation is built, right? But then at the same time, it has like this hero that, that, that maybe knows better. Right, that that somehow is beyond, and so when Kurt Russell walks away and he kind of exposes the absurdity of Western imperialism um, and this this desire to to build peace, there's something interesting because he snickers at at what the president says because the president devalues human life, and so there's something about the morals that this criminal has that is actually like more true than mm-hmm. the civilized world. So there's something interesting about that uh, that, that I think we can kind of think about here, right? Well, Absolutely. But it, it, there is a question at the end of it, though. Uh, does Kurt Russell's desire to, you know, give the finger to the man uh, kind of clash with what is ultimately better for society, which is that he's tearing up a tape that ostensibly has the secrets for nuclear fusion on it that would, like, you know, propel human society in a, 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 a much presumably a better direction i mean that's at least the advantages that we talk about with the promise of nuclear fusion to this day that uh, it would help us transition away from fossil fuels uh, which means you wouldn't have to exploit uh, the global south and uh, like it, there's there's all kinds of things that are tied up in that that act at the end of it that it's like is this is this him doing the right thing does he care i think every single person in this movie is like a deeply cynical person so it's well it's well within his character to just be like yeah fuck the future of humanity they turned their back on me now i'm turning my back on them but it, it's one of those things that like i'm not necessarily ready to stand up and cheer for him uh, when he does that but it does feel good that donald pleasance gets uh, his come up and counterpoint what if what he's rejecting is the fundamental devaluation of human life? So the way that this system in America after in 1988 is built up is it's built on a logic of retributive justice, punitive justice, eye for an eye. And so maybe the whole point is, is that in order to have that framework of justice, you have to sacrifice human lives for the larger goal. And so what he's saying is that, okay, so the system then becomes more important. This system of peace, this summit of peace, and the people that are in charge, they're more important than individual human lives. And the problem is, is because that entire world system is built on something that devalues human life or places it secondarily. Right. And maybe that's the issue that he's kind of critiquing. So the key for nuclear fusion under different conditions, under the conditions of a world where they valued human life, would be a great uh, benefit to humanity. But under the conditions of this world, where it's based on retribution and these power structures, these imperialist power structures, aren't we just led to believe that it will only further the kind of racist imperialism of the world system? And that's what he's, he's throwing into disrepute. 
I I get that to a certain extent, but I don't know that Snake Plissken as a as a walking and breathing human is engaging with that in in a greater sense. I think he's he's doing something to screw over Donald Pleasance without any thought to what the like knock on effects of that would be. I what you just said, Raymond. He he he's an antihero in the sense that he's yeah he's not necessarily the guy you want to look up to, but he's, he's completely. <laughs> Doing he's everything definitely out of, the guy you want to pretend to be on the school. He yard, basically though. just wants to be left alone, man. He's just like, Lee, I want to just do mine and let me the fuck alone and get this bomb out of my body. Right. Basically. And, yeah. uh, uh, and the moment that that happens, he's obviously someone that doesn't play by society's rules. Right. So he, he's on his own, he's doing his own thing. And then the m- moment he is free from this, bomb from death basically because every decision he's made up to that point is literally just to get the bomb out of his body yeah it's right. like it's crank this movie's like crank yeah. with jason Statham. <laughs> and, uh, 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 and 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 everything else be like fuck it like he like even kurt russell even brings up in an interview where he's like he he says snake plissing is like basically asexual right he has that Mo- there's that time where that woman's basically hitting on him in the prison and you know clearly wants to sleep with him and stuff and he like just turns her over. He like ditches her at a moment's notice. He's just on a mission, right? And like you said, is that uh, the moral thing to do? Who knows? This is guy is in a extraordinary circumstance, and so that's what makes it a fun movie. And oh, yeah, I, know, I absolutely I don't bring think, that up as a criticism of the movie. I think it's perfectly in line with his character. Yeah, yeah, like like you said, it's perfectly in line with his character, and that's just what Snake Plissken would do. And then at the end, when he can't, the moment he has a a, a chance to fuck over the president, the most seemingly powerful person yeah. on the planet. Is, fuck you! I'm ripping this up is your my tape. One chance to yeah. screw over president. And Donald goodbye. Pleasance. I have yeah, the bomb I'm not out. Miss that opportunity. <laughs> right. So, what like, do we think John like, Carpenter's doing here? We've seen two films in a row. Last week was, you know, he's kind of like confronting a certain American myth of its founding. We were talking about Halloween and a critique of the suburbs. We've got this film that's kind of a a critique of American imperialism. Like what what is Carpenter, what is his whole ethos? Uh his ethos is is fuck Ronald Reagan. Is I think that for this movie pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> that, and he says that. Like he says like, like you know, he? he's like inspired by like just Reagan's America. This was his response to that. Was just he felt like this was the end game of of the path that Reagan would put us on, and that uh, everyone's just in it for themselves. Greed is number one. I'm in it for you know mano y mano or whatever. Everyone's in it for themselves. No one gives a fuck about each other. They make a supermax security system, you know, because they're tough on crime, and uh, mm. everyone's rights seemingly get taken away and trampled right. on in the name of of peace, peace. and justice. Yeah, law. at what cost? In yeah, order. exactly. So that's kind of, I think, the the big themes he's playing with, you know, which, uh, uh, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, libertarian stuff. It's really like like Deborah Hill, who produced the movie, is a libertarian and stuff. And I don't think that, and, and John Carpenter would not describe himself as a libertarian. He's a pretty liberal guy, right? And so I think to him, this is a cautionary tale. And to Deborah Hill, this it's also it still works as a like a you know this is what can happen if if you know fas- kind of the horseshoe fascism is on both sides, and this is what can happen when you know a form of government goes crazy. 
So, but it's like a cartoony version and it's fun. And Isaac Hayes is wrestling you and stuff in it. Okay. So I was tweeting about how I think this is a revisionist Western. And this is one of the other things that Will Wright talks about. So you have a classic Western and the classic Western is the framework that I talked about before. Basically what you have is something like in Shane, where you have the commons, where you have the prairies that are open and people can use it and people don't own the land. Right. And then what happens? These freaking cattle barons come in and they start putting up fences and they start saying, no, this is my land. And they start privatizing and this traces back to the Enclosure Acts from like the 16th century in England and things like that, right? So there's this long history that defines the transition into capitalism by this logic of privatizing the commons, right? So the classic Western frame oftentimes explores that. In Logan, what you get is that they're enclosing DNA, right? That's what the new kind of resources, the common resource of humanity is DNA that the and genetic code and things like that, right? Now, the revisionist Western doesn't necessarily eschew those beats. It it can use those beats, but it speaks about them in a different way. So my question is, is actually, is this a revisionist Western, like something like Unforgiven, for example, or something like Dances with Wolves, or um, what is it, Little Bighorn, or something like that? Is this uh, a revisionist Western? Does it confound those themes? Or is it actually just a frigging classic Western, but just told in the urban environment? You know what I would say, like anytime this that 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 phrase gets tossed around, like it's like a Western, you know, a lot, I feel like with lots of different kind of genres. And and to me, I think it's just a semantic thing. But to me, it's just like an everyday film goer person. Like when someone tells me like Star Wars is just a Western in space. I am like, okay. It's like basically that just to me means, okay, so basically any movie where it's boiled down, the, the essence of good and evil is at play, the black hats and the white hats, like you're basically calling that and, and with these grand myths and, and the frontier, I guess, of space and the West, I guess that is the one-to-one. But I also kind of am like, that's also kind of a stretch. Like, like so I guess to me, if you're going to call it, it's a semantic thing, but if you're going to, if you're going to put it on a genre uh, a shelf, a blockbuster. I would have to. I I I, I would call it a, a revisionist western. Yeah, because it's like taking the western elements of and stuff, but putting them in a totally different place in time that has nothing to do with America. Uh, uh, like Star Wars would be an example of that. In Escape from New York, I think it's similar. Where it's 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 you're taking all all the things you just said, the elements, but then putting it in this other fantastical situation. Uh, but then you can kind of put a one to one beat on 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 a normal western. Uh, to it too. yeah I, I would agree entirely i think that this is this is him sort of doing his take on uh you know the sergio leone uh western in in the same way that assault on precinct 13 he said is essentially straight up just a remake of rio bravo uh mm-hmm. which is much more like a classical western film all the howard hawk stuff and we talked a little bit about uh, and Rio Bravo is John Carpenter's favorite western, favorite film. Yeah, no, favorite film. not just his favorite. It's like his favorite movie. Okay, yeah. Um, to the point where, like, I think the the uh, I read at, uh, at one point that the uh, script that uh, eventually turned into Assault on Precinct Thirteen was um, originally titled The Anderson Alamo. Like it was, mm. it, it, it was all out there when he did that one like he got into filmmaking because he wanted to make westerns and then he just kind of fell into genre because those were the movies that were getting made but if you if you took escape from new york recast donald pleasance with a bag full of money and then dropped him out in the desert instead of in new york you'd be like "Uh, yeah that's fucking western (laughs) (laughs) and he'd ride in on a horse instead of a weird little glider yeah 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 exactly um 
Okay, so let's talk about the world building here and kind of the uh, a special kind of feat of low budget world building. That's something that that Ryan oh, yeah. talked about. I was looking at that can too. Can I say can I say something yeah. real quick about the world building? Yes, go you ahead. You bring that up because that we've we've all sort of mentioned that and just I know you you probably have a big idea about this, but I just want to say there were two incredible lines from Season Hubley when they're in that little side a restaurant there uh, before the they start breaking through the the floor that do so much for world building and it doesn't cost a penny she he hands her a cigarette and she goes wow real cigarettes you must have just got in and they don't stop the movie and go well let me explain to you how commerce works in here and we roll fake cigarettes they don't show people doing that they don't show the weird economy that's taking place like it's just one line and it says so much about the world and then in that same conversation when everyone's running around outside she says oh it's it, she says something like it's the end of the month they must be getting hungry right now and immediately you're just like they show the airdrop place for where the food gets uh, dropped off to the prisoners later on in the movie, but you you know that place exists just from that one line, and that could have been sufficient if you never saw that helicopter come in later. It's just like such savvy, smart screenwriting. Screenwriting, it's not on the nose. It just informs the characters, informs the situation, and it gets the audience up to date in a way that isn't like having to beat them on the head with it. But sorry, go go ahead. What uh, uh what your point was going to be? No, that's great. I mean, I I think my thing is is what makes successful world building is when the world becomes a character in its own right. When it becomes like a living, breathing, moving part of the story, right? And so for me, I think that's what's so interesting. And like like you were talking earlier about how like the the, the water on the streets is almost like you know kind of like the it's it's secreting. You know, the city is secreting. Like the city's in pain, right? It's this like wet dark, you know, and, and I think there's something so amazing about that, that you can learn. Like, could you imagine if this were filmed in like broad daylight and it didn't have, you know, the weird like greens and things like that, it just wouldn't give the same vibe and the same tone. And I know people use these words like tone and vibe and mood. Like, what are these, what does that mean? Right? Like, what does it mean? And in some ways it's almost beyond semantic meaning. It's like just a feeling. It's like, it just holds you. It pulls you in. And in philosophical terms, you could call this like the sublime or you could talk about this as being like imminence or something, but it's like pulling you in. And I remembered like when I watched Alien and I was in that theater and I looked up, I felt like in a state of suspension, right? Like I was being held up like in it. Like I was almost levitating. Like I was in freaking the zone um, in like the, like the film Soul, right? I was like in the zone. And somehow I think world building is is one of the most important parts of that. It's not just about the emotions and the story and the stuff that's at the surface level, but that other stuff, the frame, is I think almost more important because it has to like express the, the themes of the story, of a world that is sad, of a world that is broken, or of a world that is in chaos, or a world that is violent in this particular story. So I, I just think it's brilliant. Another great recent example of that is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. The whole Mad Max series, really. But I, I think that Mad Max Fury Road, for a movie that is essentially like, as Buster Keaton would say, it's a plot that you could write on the back of a postage stamp. They just they drive out into the desert and then they drive back. But that entire universe, the characters, the way that they interact with each other and the world is so informed by their history. And it's, it's, it's just a universe that's so rich with story that you never have to come out and say it. You don't have to make any of it explicit. It's just like, oh, yeah, this is 
this is this weird little universe where this religion has cropped up around cars and we know that because we see them worshiping steering wheels <laughs> it's just like it's just so it, it it's so brisk it's so efficient and i think that's one of the lovely things about this film it has a, a very similar approach to its world building they uh, uh it, it's almost a cliche for people to be like and the movie like new york was like a character in the movie like you know like woody allen's movies like everyone's like and new york was like the second supporting character and i love that this movie has that vibe where it's like new york was like a character in the movie itself and they filmed it in st louis (laughs) it's like and it's just a burnt down st louis I would say um, yeah, that New York isn't John a supporting Carpenter's character. Just... I would say New York is like the main character almost. You know, it's like oh, totally. It's, it's yeah. Escape from New York, baby. That's right. You know? well, speaking speaking of New York being uh, the main character or one of the main characters in this, at least, Dude Abides nineteen eighty five just uh, chipped in a little bit to the chat here. He said, uh, "Where would you place the next Escape from movie? They've done New York and L.A. Austin, would you go all the way back to Australia, make a period piece, and uh, just use actual history? <laughs> Escape from Sydney? I don't know." if it has the uh no actually there are some amazing stories in australia about the bush rangers and if you're not familiar with who these dudes were they were basically escaped convicts who kind of lived out in the bush and stuff like that and they started their own colonies and a couple of them i can't remember if you are aussie and you're in the chats or if you're hearing this please email us and, and let us know there's like guys like jack donahue was one of the famous bush rangers there are a whole handful of these guys but there was one crew that they actually tried to escape they're, they're convicts, right? So they're trying to escape from Australia to get back to wherever the hell they're trying to get to. And they get on a ship. On, I think it's on the West Coast. And they crash. And there was like this tragic loss of, of all of these lives. But there's all these stories about these like convicts that were here that were trying to escape what was a penal colony. So like Australia was Manhattan Island. It was this high security prison. And you couldn't freaking leave. And there are Dude, all you're these living in stories. It. I am living in it. <laughs> you're living the movie right hey, now. Hey, if you want to know what Manhattan would have been like a uh, hundred <laughs> years later that's what australia is okay <laughs> wow that's pretty nice actually huh all right maybe we should make this happen uh where would you w- set the third one i know exactly where it would be i would do uh escape from Chaz, the, <laughs> the, 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 the autonomous zone in seattle oh my God. right it would just be like something goes wrong and you gotta send snake plissken back in there you know uh to get uh K- kamala harris or whoever is uh crash landed that's right. Yeah. Oh my God. It sounds like it would be directed by uh, someone that did like The Purge. I can totally see it. That same aesthetic because I think The Purge, <laughs> at least the first one, I I don't know about the second. I mean, the second one is more on the street. No, John right? Carpenter so guess, would fucking direct it. Yeah, well, that's anyway, there. Well, yeah, yeah, I guess that's true because <laughs> uh, he, he's not dead. I keep forgetting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on the topic Sorry, of I didn't current mean to, events. to cut you off. <laughs> on the topic of current events with uh, regards to the pandemic, I would settle for uh, Escape from My Apartment. <laughs> oh, All Jesus. right. Yeah. What, can, what would I happen? Yeah. Right now. I dig it. I dig it. I dig it. Well, okay. So since we're talking about different escapes, we just briefly, I mean, a lot of people in the chat, a lot of people on Twitter hit me up and they were talking about Escape from LA and a, a handful of people were like, they think Escape from LA is better. So let's no, let's dude, just take that, a minute. Those people are are lying to themselves, and they know it. They know. They're, okay. They're they're being provocateurs. There's no there's no sane universe where Escape from L.A. is better than Escape from. Okay, LA. describe describe Escape from L.A. a little bit. What's going on? It's 
unfortunately it's not a good movie and and <laughs> russell just plays sports for most of it really i heard there's well, like a five it, minute it, scene where he plays basketball scene, yeah. there's a big surfing scene there's a the, the surfing scene is pretty rad i have to say i think that he had good intentions you know he he once again was trying to make a bazillion dollar sequence on no money and and it looks it because it looks like shit uh, by today's standards but what the what this that movie suffers from that happens every once in a while is the sequel is a total rehash like literally like beat for beat almost scene for scene uh 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 they it's escape from new york except like like literally they just replace oh i thought you were dead with i thought you were taller i i'm pretty sure is how it goes like everyone was like i thought you were taller that's that's not even that funny you know so and uh steve Buscemi is in it he's a wacky character i think um anyway it's just they try to to make lightning strike twice and it does it, it's a pretty big failure i think um it's it's fun it's campy it's totally worth watching it's not like a it's not a total failure i shouldn't use the word failure to like sling it around it just doesn't it's not as a classic movie like escape from new york is it is and it like a good it's a good bad it's a good bad movie it's one of it's those. Fun. It's it, I would say I'm not really into the good bad watches, but it's like yes, I would say that people who are into that would would, would eat this movie up. Escape from LA. You know. Yeah. What do you think, Raymond? Um, I I chimed in about as much. I've only seen Escape from LA once, and it was yeah back in high school, just because my friends and I were all obsessed with this series. Um, it's nice to see Pam Pam Greer's in it. It's always nice to see her on screen. Um, yeah. Uh, sure. Someone in the chat just mentioned there's a Bruce Campbell cameo in it that I had forgotten oh, about. Right. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's just not <laughs> it's not in the same league as uh, as Escape from New York. But it's it's always nice to see Snake Plissken on screen. Yeah. Amen. Okay, so Raymond, what 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 other thoughts were you saying um, when I tweeted that I was going to talk about it being a revisionist western? You said that was going to be my lead-in. So what what? Did you come with any? Did you come with any charged ideas that you wanted to to get at? Anything about the practical effects or the direction, the history? Is there anything in the background that we can talk sure, about? Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, we we definitely covered most of the western stuff. I mean, that's just John Carpenter's skis. Like he he's been trying to make these like uh, sort of covert westerns his entire career. He did it with this Assault on Precinct Thirteen. There's a little touch of that in the thing, although that might be sort of applied retroactively because it was such an influence on the Hateful Eight. Um, but it, when he when he made Vampires, Vampires is essentially like kind of the Western that he he maybe wanted to make with Big Trouble in Little China in a weird way. Like I imagine that the the, the Western version of Big Trouble in Little China is similar to what Vampires is, and I'm not a huge fan of Vampires. I don't think it has a whole lot of fans, but it is it it has the Western influence in the same way. It kind of reminds me of um, uh, Near Dark, the Catherine Bigelow movie, really great movie. Um, I, I've never been crazy about Vampires, but I've also only seen that once. Maybe I would appreciate it more on a rewatch. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I feel like we, we covered those bases. Uh, John Carpenter is also pretty open about a lot of this stuff, far more than most filmmakers of his status. He will, he will just hold forth in an interview, and he gets, he, he's gotten very, very curmudgeon in, in uh, his old age. And he, he's very, very candid in a lot of interviews. So I would definitely recommend, if, if you're interested in um, uh, a lot of what's, what's going on in John Carpenter's head, believe me, he, 
he doesn't leave it locked up in there. You can find a lot of uh, a lot of his influences and inspiration he wears right on his sleeve, which is one of the things I admire about him as a filmmaker, at least with regards to how uh, how he approaches his work as a as a director. Like you can always feel his passion not only for the story that he's trying to tell, but the history of cinema that informs it. Okay, so I guess what we'll do is we'll start talking about what is our uh, the last thing we'll do, and then we'll jump into the mailbag here. What are your sort of favorite sequences from this film? Is there a favorite moment? Is there a favorite set piece? Is there a favorite character? Is there a favorite scene? Whatever. What What do you think? What is your favorite moment from I've Stephen got a Mark? quick one. Yeah. When Ernest Borgnine pulls up and he jumps into the cab with him and he's escaping the horde that's chasing him out of the theater... And then Ernest Borgnine is just jabbering away like, hey, yeah, yeah, you know, how's it going? All right, well, that was a that was a pretty close call, huh? And as he's talking, he's lighting a Molotov cocktail. <laughs> and then he just kind of chucks it out of the sunroof and drives off. It's just, yeah, just one of those great moments that is like, we, we talked a little bit uh, last week about, uh, Ryan, you said the fog doesn't have the same sense of humor that a lot of John Carpenter stuff does and i i definitely agree with you uh, to a certain extent i think there's some humorous stuff in the fog but for the most part they're playing it pretty straight and in this one it's like you, you this is such a crazy world and such crazy and unique and colorful characters that are uh, lighting up the screen you kind of have to lean into that stuff and there there are some great moments as a result of that ryan what about you brother uh i was trying to look up the character the uh frank devil day who plays Romero. Oh, that, that spiky hair dude. The spiky hair dude is just one of those great cinema He's characters. really going for it in this one. He's really going for it. And apparently, um, I saw in an interview, John Carpenter was like, yeah, that guy just came with that complete <laughs> characterization. I didn't come up with that. That character is that guy. Uh, <laughs> so props to him. And dude, it works. Like he... That's a good director is knowing when somebody comes to you with something insane like that. Like that's an insane choice, right? for a character uh uh and he's like all right i'm gonna roll with that sure yeah. that makes sense like this guy just makes sense in that world coming out of the shadows just being like whatever the fuck he says you're gonna die blue skin or something um he's a great character actor and i love that guy and yeah this movie is just filled with those people that i would say at a certain point and especially in escape from la starts bordering on the too cartoony sometimes like mm. ernest borgnine is a straight up like you just said, that scene of him throwing a ball down the cactus. I love it. Like, right? It's crazy, mm. but it's like, it's almost like, like that. Is, that's a cartoony thing to have happen in a in a otherwise serious movie. Um, another, another great bit of world building from Ernest Borgnine when he sort of uh, just storms into the brain's sort of uh, library there, and he just goes, "Hey, I could use some gas if you could spare it." He just kind of throws it over his shoulder before walking mm. into the recesses <laughs> of the library. Just so many sharp little throwaway lines like that that mm. once again just inform the world and, and give you a sense of place and uh, a, a sense of circumstances and stakes you know I kinda... a lot of that was due to uh, nick castle his sometimes co-writer that his like buddy from usc like he he i guess brought him on to bring a lot of the humor so like like the, the whole play the like fake broadway play where all the all the prisoners mm -hmm. are putting on a play yeah. that was apparently all nick castle and stuff mm. and, and Ernest Borgnine is delighted by that oh, play yeah. he is like dazzled he's probably seen it a million least. times yeah have you you have you seen Uncut Gems oh yeah well, yes really. yes yes one of my favorite one of my favorite bits in Uncut Gems is when he 
finally gets like out of the trunk <laughs> after getting shaken down by Eric Bogosian uh-huh. and he goes to sit back down in his daughter's play and it's right when like the gold starts spewing out of her mouth and he's just staring <laughs> at it like oh my god this is incredible like what a production and I was reminded of that moment when I saw Ernest Borgnine just smiling ear to ear watching these guys dance around in their in their crummy dresses have you have you guys heard of the San Pedro prison in Bolivia no. I don't think so. So for people listening and for the two of y'all, I would give this a Google. There's some documentaries on this. There's some books on this. It's basically, it's the largest prison in Bolivia. And it is famous for being a society unto itself. There's really no rules inside. And so what you have is you have like these like drug kingpins and a lot of these powerful people that establish hierarchies and they've actually built up like an internal economy with their own currency and like their wives and their kids are allowed to come into the prison and kind of live with them even. And if you're one of the people that has like a little bit of resources and money, you actually have like hot tubs in your, in your room and shit like that. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's really friggin' wild. And then of course there's like extreme poverty and um, they have like rules in the sense that like if people are fighting and like a child comes, they like stop to, to protect the child and they don't want the child to see the violence. So there's like there's own rules and justice. And as I was as I was watching this this film, I was thinking a lot about this prison. And it's just something for people to kind of check out because it's super, super interesting. A society within itself that has its own rules, that has its own that has its own world. Right. And there's something about humanity that like is going to build up a, a sense of order in whatever situation it finds itself in order to survive or in order order to gain power or in order to um, have sex or whatever it is that you're trying to do, you're going to like, you know, have control over people's bodies or you're going to have control over the resources or you're going to have control over the space or whatever it is, right? So there's something really interesting about that from like a sociological perspective. So I would just say check out that, that prison. It's called the San Pedro prison in Bolivia, but it's, it's, it's a crazy, crazy story if nothing else. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, I guess let's jump into the mailbag here. So uh, we got um, uh, a few emails, but um, what I do, what I'm going to do is I'm going to do one on the fog, I'm going to do one on tenant, and then one um, that's an old email. And I kind of want to start with the old email because it's something that kind of flew under the radar, and I think it'd be kind of something fun for us to kind of talk about really quickly here off the top. Um, it was an old email from Sean who was saying, "Hey, have you guys ever considered talking about Barry Lyndon?" Now this is a Kubrick film, right? <laughs> But but this is one of those Kubrick films that I feel like a lot of people don't talk about. And I almost wonder, like, what the hell would you even say about Barry Lyndon? Except for that, like, what? It's like paintings that come to life or something like that? Like, Dude, J- Jared, Jared's probably rolling over. Uh, his ears are glowing right now because, he, you know, that's like his favorite movie of all time. He, like, gets off <laughs> on Barry Lyndon. Yeah. I'm sure... And, We've definitely talked about it in some form or fashion, like during a, a Kubrick podcast. I can't believe we haven't actually done the whole podcast yet because that's like his all-time favorite. And I, uh, and I always give him shit for it because to me, I mean, yeah, it's beautiful, whatever, but fuck Barry Lyndon. Like, it's so wrong. <laughs> like, no. I uh, think and, – and that's the thing. I think a lot of people think of that movie as like, oh, it's the boring, long Kubrick film. Yes, it is. But that I, is what it is. Lit by cameras. I, I disagree entirely. You're I think one of it's, those, it, huh? You're a it's, Jared. It's, no, I'm not a Jared. Jared a also Jared, loves Raymond. Tenet. I thought <laughs> you guys were telling me that, that Jared would be pissed because I don't like Christopher Nolan movies. Um, 
But I I think that Barry Lyndon is an underrated picture, and it is far far funnier than people give it credit for. It's it, it's really entertaining and kind of subversive and transgressive in its own way. It's not for just three hours. Every... It's entertaining. Yeah, there's little moments of humor. Yeah, but absolutely. Three hours. Uh, you're what's wrong with your it? What's ass our, off what, for three hours? What's wrong with a three? There can't be a good three hour movie. Oh, there can. I have lots of great, good three okay. hour movies. Barry Lyndon is not one of them. It is okay, a long. Slow, tedious, candlelit <laughs> film with, at the pace of a snail, set in a time that I am not have nothing to do with. You know, like no, like Barry Lyndon is not entertaining to to even me. Your cinephile, to you, you know, your 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 classic your classic patient cinephile who watches everything at one and a half times speed. I no, I love I love I watched. 2001 on one and a half times speed on my 40th viewing. I'm never going to let this go. I'm never going to let this go. I am a patient viewer. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think think Barry Lyndon would make for a great uh, Show Me the Meaning episode, but I do do defend it. If you want to continue to instigate fights like this, see, this is why we need your emails. So please email us at movies at wisecrack.co. That's movies at wisecrack.co. You can talk about the John Carpenter retrospective. You can talk about films that you'd like us to... Uh, maybe delve into, uh, you can give us theories on film, whatever the heck you want, movies at wisecrack.co. You can also call us at 1-213-534-8807. That's 1-213-534-8807. We have a comment from Ash on The Fog. Uh, Ash says, just watched this film for the first time by chance on Sunday because it was on Amazon Prime, and I love John Carpenter. I love the idea of the radio host throughout the movie as she feels helpless, even when able to reach out to the whole town. Having watched this, it doesn't top the thing, Escape from New York, or They Live for Me, but still glad I watched it. And then I think we talked about this, but also just watched Escape from L.A. recently and wanted to... And, and it was an interesting movie, to say the least, and just wanted to say that the interesting, there's an interesting fact, this was today, so this was last week when we were recording, that the actor Hal Holbrook's birthday was uh, was that day, I think Raymond pointed that out and then passed away, so this is what Ash wanted to mention. But yeah, so what do you think about um, this idea that the radio host is able to communicate constantly, but there's this sense of helplessness? Is there something about, I don't know, is there something about... I think it's, it's a great device. Yeah. It's a... I, I, I don't think we brought that up or we, we didn't dig into that too much, but that was even something that I, I kind of made a mental note of when I was watching it, that it is just not only a really cool set and a cool setting and uh, a cool gig for that character to have and that she's kind of the voice of Antonio Bay and everyone thinks they know her. They assume a familiarity with her in a certain way and they all brag about having seen her in the grocery store and on top of all of that, it's kind of the Snake Plissken effect that she is like the, the you know, quite literally the shining light of this town. Mm. And when push comes to shove, she's just a helpless person on the other end of the radio. And it's just that scene where she's screaming to whoever's listening, please go help my son, is just like such a perfectly designed movie moment. And, and I just... I think it's a really well constructed film. Obviously, I'm uh, I'm the uh, resident defender of the fog, but I think that is one of the aspects that really uh, that really brings that character to life. That um, she's someone who's you know James Dean cool when she's on the radio waves, and seeing that deteriorate over the course of the movie as she not only takes it upon herself to warn others of the fog, but then realize that she can like in a moment of of selfishness and urgency just 
blare out this thing to whoever's got the radio turned to her is just like mm-hmm. go someone please help my son someone please and the fact that she will never know if anyone heard that and acted on it is so heartbreaking it's just such a great moment i love that mm-hmm. moment in the film yeah rye any thoughts on this um my only thought is that uh it's just a, it's just another example of john carpenter using a cool cinematic device like there's just something cool like you said about uh uh the of you know he's using it's a it's a job that she has that also uses audio visual stuff uh well for a film and and especially with the fog creeping in you got airwaves and fog and it's just kind of an aura and there's you know the whole uh boats using you know using the radio and stuff like that yeah, no no yeah radio, yeah 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 same kind of thing it's just like it, 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 yeah. it creates an atmosphere is it growing on you Ryan no i don't like <laughs> man it's low to mid-tier uh, Carpenter. Uh, last, last email. It's kind of a long one. I'm going to read the whole thing, though, and um, partly this is to maybe annoy Raymond because it's about Tenant. So here we go. Uh, <laughs> someone, okay. someone calling for blood. <laughs> so this is from Declan. Uh, the title of the email was Tenant, Fatalism, Faith, and the Joys of Its Batshit Crazy Plot. Hi, Wisecrack. After listening to your episode on Tenet, I have a thought uh, that I should... I thought that I should write in and give my spin on its themes. It took me three viewings to get there, but it was on my most recent viewing that got me off the fence and willing to call Tenet a great movie. The themes of fatalism and faith seem obscured by a ton of plot, but the true unacknowledged or unknowability of either of these lands us in the same position as the characters by nature of their metaphysical properties. As a physicist, Neil, which is Robertson, Robert Pattinson's character, seems to be the most familiar with the laws of the universe out of anyone, yet even he confesses he doesn't fully understand it all. Still, he proclaims a belief that when everything is said and done, it will all make sense. And indeed, one could try to tear the film apart only to arrive at the conclusion we have been told from the start, which is that every loose end will ultimately eventually tie itself up, and that it is simply easier to let the story run its course rather than fighting it. As Neil tells us, what happened, happened, which is an expression of faith in the mechanics of the world. Especially if we find our participation being invited, then this philosophy should be embraced and not taken as an excuse to do nothing. And then he continues to go on and says that Tenet is far from perfect because this may be Nolan's most exposition-heavy film, but it is not his worst. His skills as a director simply outweigh his flaws as a screenwriter. Tenet is a winding labyrinth that one can easily lose themselves in, but much like the laws of science, there's a comfortable ease in letting go and watching it tick along at its own pace. Take care, Declan. Couldn't read the whole email. It was a nice long email, but wanted to at least at least uh mention that one since it was a very thoughtful response so what do you think is there any way yeah, yeah go ahead go ahead what, what do we think any any responses to Declan's email or to those ideas about fatalism and trusting the laws of the universe and just letting go and letting it wash over you my response to that is as everything you need to know about that email was in the first opening line where he says it took me three times to watch this movie <laughs> But I finally, after doing a dissertation on it, decided, yes, it is uh, actually good. No, it shouldn't take, take that. You know, that movie, if you have to think that hard on it, man, that movie really blew, I thought. It was a big miss opportunity. Like, I, I, there, there needs to be, a, someone needs to take the whole backwards concept that he made and actually make, someone needs to remake Tenet in 20 years and make it better. 
All right, we've That's talked about Tenant to death. We don't have to keep talking about it. Let's go ahead and get out of here. Thank you so much for writing in, everybody. Uh, remember, you can call us, 2-1-2-1-3-5-3-4-8-8-0-7. Leave us a voicemail on your thoughts, or you can email us, movies at wisecrack.co. Let's get out of here. Raymond, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter and Letterboxd. I'm at Crematoria, C-R-E-A-M-A-T-O-R-I-A. Uh, feel free to swing by my Letterboxd uh, and watch me go insane this year because I'm currently on pace for like a thousand movies in 2021. Uh, I'm And I'm fucking losing my mind. So. <laughs> All right, Ryan, where can people find you? Uh, at Ryan's Game Show on Twitter and Ryan's Shorts. I'm releasing a whole bunch of, of comedy shorts there soon. You're going to... Uh, very funny don't stuff. Don't want to miss it. Oh, thank you, Raymond. I appreciate that. Um, I mean, you do like the fog, though, so I don't know. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> just kidding. Hey, just I kidding. know funny. I like Barry Lyndon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that duel scene is pretty hilarious, actually. It is actually real. That's yeah. a really fucking funny good scene. scene. You know, there's good shit in there, but Jesus, it's you have to wade through so much. All right, Austin, what about you? Where can we find you? Hit sir? me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden, or you can find me on Insta, AUS underscore H-A-Y. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. We just did an interview with labor activist and journalist Sarah Jaffe, and that uh, episode will oh, be up that. today. Yeah, she's wonderful. So she has a new book called Work Won't Love You Back that's really uh, interesting, and we talked a lot about the importance of building art communities and social unions and things like that to try to help mitigate some of the fallout from burnout that society uh, seems to be perpetuating. So, good stuff. Okay, Ryan, send us out, brother. Goodbye, friends!